Ignorance Prejudice by Jane Austen. Volume 2, Chapter 1. Announcements, announcements, announcements. Alright, so before we get into this week's chapter... I am going to take a moment to talk about the new Pride and Prejudice on Netflix because I am recording this on June 15th, Wednesday, June 15th, and the first trailer has just been dropped, I think yesterday, but I saw it the first time today. So, and I've also, I'm also on a bunch of like groups online about Jane Austen. There has been a lot of debate. It's been all over the place. Um, the general feeling seems to be negative um, towards the trailer. And then, so there's lo been lots of hate against the trailer. And then there's been lots of people, I don't know, defending it and saying that people should stop hating on it until they actually see the movie. And so I just want to give a little bit about my feelings on the subject. So, this new persuasion is coming out on Netflix in July of 2022. And so they just dropped the trailer, and my initial reaction is that I cannot stand what they've done with Anne's hair. Anne's hair is atrocious throughout the trailer, and that is one of my pet peeves. If you're giving me a period piece, I want you to give me period piece in the costume and the hair and stuff. I mean, you can make little alterations to make it more aesthetically pleasing for a modern eye, I suppose. But I don't like it when they just completely throw out, like, the hairstyles of the time period. And that's what it does seem like they've done with Anne. And it stands out because a lot of the other supporting cast members seem to have appropriate hairstyles. But then she just doesn't. She just has her hair down a bunch and she has, like, modern bangs. And it's, I don't know. I really dislike that aesthetic choice to have such a modern hairstyle in a period piece. So that's one thing. That's just my personal little bugaboo about it. I, I, um, anyone who knows me knows that I get into the hair, um, of Regency period pieces. I, the hair really bothers me. I want period hair. I really like hair from that time period and I want it to be correct. And that's something that I hate about the 2005 Pride and Prejudice. The hair is so bad. Don't get me wrong. The movie, there's some great things, but the hair, hair is horrible. Um, and um, one of the Mansfield Park adaptations, again, Fanny wears her hair down the entire time and it bothers me so much. So this is my own little personal pet peeve. I don't know if anybody else really cares. But I noticed that right away as I don't like what they're doing with Anne's hair in the trailer, at least. We'll see if her hair is better in other scenes throughout the movie. Um, the other thing, though, is that it really came off as very slapsticky, you know, like rom-com slapstick. 90s comedy kind of thing um the way she like in the trailer there's a scene where she meets Captain Wentworth for the first time and she's got jam on her face and a basket on her head and is like playing with the kids and embarrasses herself and her hair is down in that scene of course it is um uh, it just felt wrong and then there's another scene where she like pours gravy on her head accidentally um I just it felt very slapsticky so, again, there's just two scenes, so maybe the whole movie won't have that feel to it, but I am worried that it's got a very, like, I slipped on a banana peel kind of comedy going on. Um, 
which I don't feel is appropriate for persuasion. Um, some of Jane Austen's other works are more comedic, right? Like, I think North, Northanger Abbey is very much a comedy, in my opinion. I think Emma's got a lot of slapstick comedy stuff going on in it. Pride and Prejudice can definitely be seen as very comedic in a lot of times. But persuasion really isn't, in my opinion. There are some funny lines and such. There's some great characters, but I don't see it as comedic. Um, if you've listened to my season on persuasion, I have read it for the first time recently for this podcast. So um, it is not as, um, I'm not as emotionally attached to persuasion as I am to some of Jane Austen's other novels that I've read more times and have had more time to really invest and be part with, be part of it. Um, but my interpretation of persuasion is as a more serious story, more of a drama, less of a comedy. Um, and I love comedic moments in a drama, but the trailer makes me feel like they're turning it into a rom-com, which I don't think is appropriate in my opinion. It's or like not real for the, Thing. And I also, it does also seem like they're going to up the sort of love triangle thing between Mr. Elliot, Captain Wentworth, and Anne, which I don't think in the book it ever is really something anybody care like thinks is gonna for real happen. Like I don't think there really is much of a real love triangle in the book because it doesn't. Anne's never interested in, in Mr. Elliot. I don't think, and I think that's pretty clear through the whole thing at least my interpretation of it, that Anne is really never interested in him. So I'm a little worried that they're going to sort of change that and make her seem like she's more interested in him in such a, in a way to like up that sort of love triangle drama-ness. I mean, it is kind of there in that Wentworth thinks that she is, but I don't think, but we're in Anne's head, so we know she isn't. So I don't know that, that could be okay. Um, but I am feeling, I'll be honest from the trailer overall negative because of because of the slapstickiness because it doesn't seem like it's keeping the tone of persuasion which is a more serious story um so i'm nervous about it let's be very frank and honest i'm going to watch it probably on the day it comes out because i am still very excited to see it i want to see it um but i am very apprehensive because i'm not sure that i'm gonna love it um, I am nervous that they are going to do some things that I really dislike. As a disclaimer, I'm not a huge fan of the 2005 Pride and Prejudice for some of those same reasons, some of those um, liberties and changes that are made, which I mean is maybe a little hypocritical on my part because I love Fire Island and obviously that's got lots of changes in it as an adaptation. Um, but I think in my opinion... I am much more willing to forgive something like that in a modern adaptation because you have to modernize the story and so you can change a lot of things. I love Fireland. I love Lizzie Bennet Diaries and there are some big changes that are made and choices that have to be made in adapting a story like this to modern times. However, when you're making a period piece, I think I hold it to very different standards and I don't know if that's fair, but it is what I do. Um, feel free to send me comments if you think that that is an acceptable way to do this or if that's not fair to the piece. But I do, I, I will admit, I have different standards for a period piece version versus a modern adaptation of the story in that I feel like if you're going to keep the period piece and you got to keep the 
time things from that time period in mind, including things like the social mores, which they completely threw out in the 2005. And that's one of the things that really bothers me about that movie is like the social, the societal norms of the time of, you know, how the world works, societal rules and stuff. were all just kind of thrown out the window and didn't, we did, we just forgot about them. We don't care about them anymore. But that meant the stakes and stuff didn't really make as much sense. Um, so if you're going to give it more of a modern morality social society, then the story does need to be tweaked because they don't because a lot of these stories have pieces of them that don't make sense in a modern context. Pride and Prejudice, as a big example, the whole Lydia storyline doesn't really work in a modern context unless you make some very significant changes, which they have to do in the Lizzie Diaries and Fire Island to make it work. Um, but if you're doing it in the period, then you can do what happened in the story. Um, so I'm a little nervous that it seems like they're taking some sort of in-between idea and doing like modern sensibilities, but a period piece. And that is kind of, I'm nervous about that because it has to be just right for it to work. What I'm thinking of is something like Love and Friendship, which is the um, movie adaptation of Lady Susan, the um, one of Jane Austen's novellas um, that I love. And that Love and Friendship, I think, was a beautiful adaptation that did sort of feel modern, even though they kept so much of that language from the time period. But that worked because they kept the clothes from the time period. They kept the hair. They kept the social mores. Like, they kept a lot of the language. It was just some... But somehow it still felt like a good, cool, like fast-paced modern adaptation. I really loved that one. So maybe this will work. But I am very, very nervous about it. Um, I was super excited to hear that we were going to get it. Um, if you remember, not that long ago, when it was first announced, there were like competing persuasions. There were supposed to be two coming out. The other one got canceled or killed because, I think, of the Netflix one coming out. So, um... Which is sad. I feel like we could have had two persuasions. Why not? Um, but we're only getting one. And it is this one from Netflix. And the trailer makes me very nervous that they are not going to be, I'm going to use the word respectful to the source material. Because I feel like, in my opinion, Jane Austen wrote some comedies and she wrote some dramas. And I think the, in you know, you've got the... You've got your Northanger Abbey, Lady Susan, Emma, Pride and Prejudice, all can be sort of classified on the comedic side. Versus, I would say Mansfield Park, Persuasion, and Sense and Sensibility are more on the drama side. Now, even the drama books have funny moments. They have funny characters. There's things that are happening, but they're more dramatic bent as a story, I think. And... So I am nervous that my initial interpretation of the trailer is that, oh no, they've taken a drama and they've made it a slapstick comedy. Especially the freaking gravy on her head. Like that is the scene that is sticking out to me as like, oh no, I'm so nervous about this now. Because that, her pouring freaking gravy on her head has no place in a, in a story like Persuasion. At all. You know, like... I'm thinking of a similar scene from the Emma 2020 where Harriet like puts her face in the flower in like the Christmas scene where she's playing that game and they kind of have that slapstick moment where she has the flower all over her face. 
but M is a comedy and it works and Harriet would so do that like that feels natural and real and that's a real game that they played in the time period so that makes sense to add something like that but her pouring gravy on her head as like a slapstick lighthearted haha moment in persuasion which is supposed to be all about the longing and the drama I don't know guys I'm so nervous um Again, I will watch it. I am planning to watch it probably immediately. Even if I hate it, I will probably watch it more than once because it's a Jane Austen movie. But I am so nervous that they're going to screw it up. And, um, yeah. So that's where I'm at. I'm scared. Send me good thoughts. Keep your hopes up. Um, I'll let you know what I think when it comes out. But at this point, I'm holding out much more hope for... The YouTube version of Persuasion, which is called Rational Creatures, which is also supposed to come out sometime this summer. I don't know a specific date, but the trailer for that one came out and I am so excited. That one seems chef's kiss perfect. So at this moment in time, I am very nervous about the Persuasion on Netflix. Um, and so therefore putting my hopes on Rational Creatures instead. But like I said gonna watch both i'm excited to see i'm just very very nervous about what netflix is doing <sighs> and especially with what they've done to uh bridgerton <sighs> I, I don't i don't have the faith at the moment in them and their greatness but we will put that behind us now moving on from talking about persuasion and going on to speaking about pride and prejudice we have finally made it into volume two. Yay! Previously on Pride and Prejudice, we finished volume one. Yay! So, all of volume one, what I'm going to say happened is we met all our characters. We've figured out a lot of the major drama that is going on between said characters. Mr. Bingley leased a house, brought his sisters and his friend into town, fell in love with Jane and left again. Mr. Darcy came with his friend into town, fell in love with Elizabeth and left again. Caroline came with her brother into town, um, hated everyone, and left again. We've got Mr. Collins coming into town, trying to get married to Lizzie, being rejected, and getting engaged to her best friend Charlotte instead. And that's really most of what's happened so far. Um... A lot more drama, a lot more detail, some great language, but really, what well, we've met our characters, we've met the, we've set in place the stuff we need for the rest of this drama. And most recently, we have learned all about Mr. Collins and Charlotte becoming engaged and all the drama and fallout that is coming from that. And... That was the end of, of volume one. We're getting into volume two. Here we go, y'all. 
right. So here we are with volume one, or no, yeah, chapter one of volume two. We are getting in to the second volume. So let's see. Volume two starts with the sentence. Miss Bingley's letter arrived and put an end to doubt. So we're starting with the fact that Mr. Bingley is not coming back and his sister has confirmed it. The reason that Jane obviously is talking to Caroline is that she's not allowed to have communications with an unmarried man. That would be scandalous. So she has to talk to his sister. So Jane and Caroline have been writing and Caroline confirms that they are staying in London for the winter. They are not coming back. And this means that hope is over for Jane. And the rest of this chapter is mostly going to be all the characters chatting and, you know, gossiping about the situation. So it says that they are all going to stay there for the winter and concluded that her, bro her brother's regret not having a time to pay his respects to his friends in Hertfordshire before he left the country. And then we get this very melodramatic sentence. Hope was over. Entirely over. And when Jane could attend to the rest of the letter, she found little except the professed affection of the writer that could give her any comfort. Miss Darcy's praise occupied the chief of it. Her many attractions were again dwelt on, and Caroline boasted joyfully of their increasing intimacy, and ventured to predict the accomplishment of the wishes which had been unfolded in her former letter. Meaning that she is still hoping that her brother, Mr. Bingley, is going to marry Darcy's little sister, Georgiana. She wrote also with great pleasure of her brother's being an inmate of Mr. Darcy's house, and mentioned with rapture some plans of the latter with regard to new furniture. So that's Caroline's letter. Caroline writes about how Miss Darcy, Georgiana, is the best and she's so great and she and Charles are getting along so well and she's really hopeful they're going to get married. Which we know from later in the book when we see Bingley and Miss Darcy interacting that I, I mean, we see pretty clearly that there's not really a romantic connection there. So Caroline is obviously making this up. Um, now, I think that this is what she wants. She would love for her brother to marry Miss Darcy. She would think that's great. But I also think that it's interesting that she wants to make this pair happen, especially from a modern sense, because I think Georgiana is 16 at this point. So she is claiming that her brother is, like, into a 16-year-old, which is kind of gross, especially from a modern context. I know at the time period it's not seen as quite as bad, but still not great. Um, so that's something that's always weird to me, is that she's really trying to hope for this marriage with her adult, like, mid-20s brother. I think he's probably 24, 25. And then Georgiana, who's 16. That's pretty gross, in my opinion. But, again, was more accepted at the time, still. But even 16, at that time period, was still considered young. I don't think that it's... It seems like Darcy's not planning to have her get married anytime soon. Um, so I do think that she is pushing. I think that it's clear that Darcy wouldn't be against a match between his sister and Bingley. That comes up later. Um, with his thoughts, but it also doesn't seem like he is pushing her on, you know, onto the marriage mart anytime soon. 
she has not come out yet. She's not, like, visiting really yet. The way, you know, we're talking with Lydia that she is out and going to parties and with company and stuff. It doesn't seem like Georgiana is. Um, and, again, 16 is a little young. It would be much more likely to be 17, 18 when you come out onto society like that and get married. Um, and even into, like, the early 20s would be a much more normal sort of marriage age. Right around 2021, I think, was kind of the average for women. So... Georgiana is very much on the young end of acceptable. Legal, and, and it would be, you know, as we see later, when Lydia gets married at 16, it is something that can happen. I mean, even in modern day, in most states in America, you can get married at 16, which is gross and weird and shouldn't be, but that is what our laws are currently. Um, so it's one of those things where, yeah, it's there and it's acceptable, quote unquote, but um, it always feels a little scummy to me. When Caroline is trying to like make this match between a 16 year old and 24 year old. So uh, that's coming from kind of a modern sensibility, but I still wanted to throw that out there. But let's talk about this realistically. Caroline is doing this to try and make sure that Jane knows her place, right? Caroline is trying to say, like, yeah, you're, my brother's not into you, he's actually into this other girl. And um, she's so much better. She's so great. You're nothing. She's not going to say those words. But that is the implication, right? That, like, we have found that Georgiana is better in every way. And she's so wonderful. And she's so great. And Jane, just give up all your hopes. He's not that into you. That's what this letter is all about. So Jane tells Lizzie about the letter. And it says her heart was divided between concern for her sister and resentment against all the others. So she right away knows that Caroline is lying, that that Mr. Bingley, Charles, is smitten with Miss Darcy. She right away is like paid no credit, has no mind. That's not true, obviously. And the fact that he thinking that he was never into Jane, which is also implied in her letter, she's like, that is obviously not true, pushing that aside. Um, but what she thinks on is she could not think without anger, hardly without contempt on that easiness of temper, that want of proper resolution, which now made him the slave of his designing friends, meaning his sisters and Mr. Darcy, I believe. Which is interesting because it calls into question... If you remember that conversation that they had in the drawing room when they were stuck at Netherfield about uh, about how easy Bingley's temper was that, you know, he would make a resolution to go do something and if his friend told him not to, he wouldn't he wouldn't do it and he'd right away oblige his friend and Lizzie took his side and said that's really like a good thing for Bingley's temper. That means that he's a good person and so obliging to his friends and so, you know, such an easy temper seeing as a good thing. And now she's kind of seeing the other side of it. This is what Darcy was saying, that, you know, such a temper can't be trusted. Basically, was he was kind of taking that other side and seeing it as a bad thing that you weren't, you know, sticking to your guns. And here we are seeing where now Elizabeth is taking Darcy's side on that argument. She's not realizing it, but we as a reader can realize that she's now taking the other side of that argument and seeing that Bingley's temper is so easy that, yes, he was able to be talked into staying in London, even though he was falling in love with Jane. And his friends were able to manipulate him and get him to do what they wanted him to do, even though he was planning to come back to Hertfordshire and see Jane again. And so she's now taking the other side of the argument, which I think is really interesting and a nice literary thing to do, which is fun. Um, 
And so I just think it's interesting she's taking the other side. But why she's angry, she's thinking like like with his own happiness, he can play around with that as much as he wants. The reason she's mad is that it's hurting Jane, obviously. And so she's really blaming his friends, his sisters, Mr. Darcy, for causing this problem, which I think is fair. But she's also mad at Bingley for being of such an easy temper that he allowed himself to be talked into this. And then it says a day or two passes before we then get this conversation between Jane and Lizzie, which I am probably basically just going to read to you because I've got the whole thing highlighted. It's so good. I, you know, the conversations that Jane Austen writes are fabulous. And this is a great conversation in my opinion. So Mrs. Bennett is being very Mrs. Bennett and she is talking about the fact that Netherfield is not, is, you know, empty, that Bingley's not coming back this winter and, you know, going on and on about how awful it is. Um, and it says after a longer irritation than usual, she leaves. So now Elizabeth and Jane are by themselves and this conversation starts. So Jane starts with, Oh, that my dear mother had more command over herself. She can have no idea of the pain she gives me by her continual reflections on him. But I will not repine. It cannot last long. He will be forgot, and we shall be we shall all be as we were before. Elizabeth looked at her sister with incredulous solicitude, but said nothing. You doubt me, cried Jane, slightly colouring. Indeed, you have no reason. He may live in my memory as the most amiable man of my acquaintance. But that is all. I have nothing either to hope or fear, and nothing to reproach him with. Thank God I have not that pain. A little time, therefore, I shall certainly try to get the better. So what is Jane saying here? So she's saying that we're going to forget him. It's going to be fine. Elizabeth just kind of gives her a look like, oh, are, seriously, you're just going to forget this guy? And Jane says back that she has nothing. I have nothing either to hope or fear and nothing to reproach him with. So what I read that to be is just that, you know, I've given up, so I am not waiting for him anymore. We're going to forget him. It's all going to be fine. And I don't have anything to reproach him with. He didn't do anything wrong. You know, it's all on. Basically, where she's going with this conversation is that this is all in her head. That she read too much into it. That he, Bingley, did not do anything wrong. Didn't lead her on. Didn't, And it, that's simply, I don't think, true. The entire you know, county, the whole, all of the people they talk to think that they're basically pre-engaged at this point. Everyone is talking about it. Everyone knows he has essentially jilted her in public. I don't agree with Jane here that Bingley is blameless in the situation. He, he did act poorly and Elizabeth sees it and Jane doesn't want to. Jane's says, seeing that she just made up more than there actually was in their interactions but she's wrong. Like, everybody else saw it, too. So I feel I feel like Jane's sort of gaslighting herself here. Like, no, I, I didn't see what I saw. So Jane goes on. In a stronger voice, she added, I have this comfort immediately, that it has not been more than an error of fancy on my side, and that it has done no harm to anyone but myself. So again, she's saying that it's just... She thought that there was more than was actually happening. So it's all on her. It's all her own fault. He's blameless. I don't agree with her, but that's where Jane is right now. 
And Jane just said, or Elizabeth says, oh, my dear Jane, you are too good. Your sweetness and disinterestedness are really angelic. I do not know what to say to you. I feel as if I had never done you justice or loved you as you deserve. And Jane just kind of, you know, dismisses all of that. So like, oh, don't say something like that about me. Which is, then we get this great line, which I think is fabulous from Elizabeth. She says, nay, this is not fair. You wish to think all the world respectable and are hurt if I speak ill of anybody. I only want to think you perfect and you set yourself against it. Do not be afraid of my running into any excess, of my encroaching on your privilege of universal goodwill. You need not. There are few people whom I really love, and still fewer of whom I think well. The more I see of the world, the more I am dissatisfied with it, and every day confirms my belief of the inconsistency of all human characters, and of the little dependence that can be placed on the appearance of either merit or sense. So, this line from Lizzie, I think is fabulous. I already said that, but I'm going to reiterate. So, Elizabeth is telling Jane, you know, don't stop me from saying you're so great. And I think that this is a good thing. You know, it's one of those things we talk about. A lot of people, especially women, seem to have a hard time taking a compliment. Jane is one of those people cannot take a compliment. And Elizabeth is sort of calling her on and being like, no, I get to say nice things about you. I love and like you. I get to compliment you. And you get to deal with the fact that I'm complimenting you. Like, don't be, don't be silly, basically. Like, I get to compliment you. I get to you know, say that you're wonderful and don't worry that I'm going to like step on your toes of thinking everybody's wonderful because trust me, it's not going to happen. I don't like, I like very few people. Well, she says, I only, I, there are very few people I really love and still fewer of whom I think well. So I think that line is aimed at her own family, her own mom and some of her younger sisters where she's like, there are very few people I love, which is probably just her family and even fewer of whom I think well, because then you cut off, I think all three of her younger sisters and her mother probably. Um, and maybe Charlotte would be in the love but not like category at the moment. We'll see. Um, and she goes on to talk about how she feels very strongly in the inconsistency of people's characters. So she has met with two instances lately. One she's not going to talk about, but that Bingley, as we'll find later in the conversation, but the first one is Charlotte, and she says, again, she's still upset about Charlotte's marriage. It is unaccountable. In every view, it is unaccountable, she says. And again here, I think Lizzie is still too harsh about Charlotte. And so I'm going to take Jane's side on this because she comes back with, you know, don't say those sorts of things. They will ruin your happiness. You do not make allowance enough for difference of situation and temper, which I think Jane gets to say very clearly kind of what I was chatting about a couple chapters ago and went on and on about but lizzie and charlotte are in very different situations have very different families um while they might be similar in some ways there are a lot of big differences that make charlotte's decision un very understandable in my opinion and i think lizzie is being sort of rude and not understanding what is going on and not like being empathetic toward charlotte's situation at all and Jane goes on with that saying, you know, Mr. Collins has respectability. Charlotte is very prudent, has a steady character. She has a large family. That means she has a lot of siblings. I'm counting that as saying there's probably more than five siblings of the Lucases. We know of at least two daughters. 
uh, already, but like when they talked about it, there were younger daughters, so there's at least probably four daughters, and they talk about boys, the probably same thing about at least four boys, maybe more. So we're talking for like eight children minimum. Um, very likely more than that. There's this is a big family, and that's important because all the family is dependent on the one fortune that the father has, right? Because nobody in these circumstances is working, really. Well, some of the boys will probably work. But, I mean, if Charlotte doesn't marry, she's dependent on the family fortune and a drain on the family fortune. Now that she's married, she's not going to be a drain on the family fortune. She's actually got money of her own, well, through her husband, and she's going to inherit this estate with her husband. And she's now bringing money into the family instead of a drain on money in the family. And that is a big thing economically of that situation and for her family that Lizzie is not taking into account at all. Then I disagree with Jane a little bit because, well, she, I agree with her that, you know, as to fortune, it's a very eligible match. That was my whole thing. Yes, very, very true. But then she says, and be ready to believe for everybody's sake that she may feel something like regard and esteem for our cousin. And Lizzie comes back with this. I do kind of agree with Lizzie on. To oblige you, I would try to believe almost anything, but no one else could be benefited by such a belief as this. For were I persuaded that Charlotte had any regard for him, I should only think worse of her understanding than I now do of her heart. Which I completely agree with Lizzie here. Like, I think Charlotte, you can think Charlotte is making a good decision and work, and it works well without thinking that she actually likes Mr. Collins. Because I agree with Lizzie here. I don't think Charlotte has any liking for Mr. Collins specifically she just doesn't find him as objectionable and she is kind of seeing this as a a job a way to move forward with that job a way to make money an economic situation not something that is I don't know she's just not being romantic about it it's a way to get money and a way for her to secure herself societally and Lizzie sees that as heartless because Lizzie feels like you should only marry if you're in love but again, the economics of the time period and the situation, not everybody has the luxury of wanting to live like that. And Lizzie at the moment feels that she does. Charlotte doesn't. Charlotte is in a more dire situation and she does not feel like she has the luxury of wanting to marry for love. And she is again at an older age where she is sort of considered past her prime by society. So there's every reason to think that this is Charlotte's last chance to not live with her family, you know, have to be dependent on her brothers, her father, and then her brothers for the rest of her life. This is her one and only chance to do that and to get away from what the family that she's currently in, which I don't think is delved into enough that like, I don't think Charlotte's home life is as happy as maybe Elizabeth's is. And this is her one chance to escape. Her one shot. And that's a very different situation than what Lizzie is dealing with. Um, but I think we can believe all that and agree that Charlotte is making a choice that is correct for herself. And also um, not not put down Charlotte, Charlotte by thinking that she actually likes Mr. Collins. I don't think that that is an appropriate reading of the situation. Um, but then she goes on, and I don't agree with her again, where she, well, I do agree. She says, Mr. Collins is a conceited, pompous, narrow-minded, and silly man. You know he is as well as I do, and you must feel as well as I do that the woman who marries him cannot have a proper way of thinking. 
You shall not defend her, though it is Charlotte Lucas. You shall not, for the sake of one individual, change the meaning of principle and integrity, nor never to persuade yourself or me that selfishness is prudence, and insensibility of danger security for happiness. Which there I think, I think Lizzie goes too far. So saying that you're changing the meaning of principle and integrity, I don't think that what Charlotte's doing is unprincipled or, you know, lacks integrity. That's way overstepping. It's also not selfish. So saying that, I mean, she's basically calling Charlotte selfish for doing this. I think that's wrong. And insensibility, I don't think she's insensible either. And security for happiness. I think, again, that's a very privileged way to talk, to say that security is not happiness. I think security can be happiness. Like, there is something to be said for, like, your basic needs need to be met before you can even deal with the concept of happiness. So I think that Lizzie is coming from a very, very privileged place to be t saying that Charlotte is selfish for wanting to have security financial security and valuing that above sentimental love. I can't get behind that. And I think Lizzie is showing her selfishness and insensibility to steal her own words in not understanding what's going on with Charlotte and not having any sympathy for her and not understanding that security is a very important piece. Even when we talk later, when we get to Lizzie's own love story, she would not be able to marry Darcy if he didn't give her security. Even if she thought that he was the perfect man and fell in love with him the way she does, she would not be able to marry him if he didn't happen to also be rich. So I think that she is full of you-know-what and is, is way too harsh and is not having the empathy that she should have for her best friend in this setting. And... It makes me sad because I love Lizzie. I don't want you to think that I think Lizzie is a horrible person because I do not. But I think she's very wrong here. And I think that she will hopefully learn and be better in the future. But right now, I really dislike how judgmental she is about Charlotte's situation and how unempathetic she is being. So Jane continues on saying that she feels like the language that Lizzie just used is too strong, which is basically what I just said. So I agree with Jane. And I hope that you'll be convinced by seeing them happy together. But enough of this. Okay, so we're going to move Charlotte aside. And so hopefully I will attempt to stop rambling about Charlotte now. But I have strong feelings on the subject. But we're moving on. Jane is changing the topic to the other instance, which, because Lizzie said there were two things. And so the other instance is, of course, somebody that Jane is not going to say. She keeps saying, she says, that person. We know she's talking about Charles Bingley. Um, but she says, do not pain me by thinking that person to blame and saying your opinion of him is sunk. So Jane is saying it's not his fault. And, you know, don't think poorly of him. And she goes on to say, we must not be so ready to fancy ourselves intentionally injured. We must not expect a lively young man to be always so guarded and circumspect. It is very often nothing but our own vanity that deceives us. Women fancy admiration means more than it does. And Lizzie replies, and men take care that they should. 
So here's an interesting thing here, where Jane is really saying that Bingley is not to blame. Don't think poorly of him. You know, we should not think that we are actively being hurt in any way. Um, we think that what, you know, the admiration he's showing means more than it actually does. Um, and Lizzie says that, well, men want us to. They, you know, they take care that we should. And Jane comes back, well, if it is done on purpose, then it can't be justified. But I don't think that there is, you know, I don't think, uh, I have no idea of there being so much design in the world as some persons imagine. So some persons, I think here being Lizzie, right? So if they do it on purpose, they can't, be, it's not justifiable, but I don't think that they were doing it on purpose the way you do. But Elizabeth comes back with, well, no, I don't think Mr. Bingley's conduct was because of design or was on purpose like that. Um, but without scheming to do wrong or to make others unhappy, there may be error and there may be misery. Thoughtlessness, want of attention to other people's feelings and want of resolution will do the business. So saying that even though Mr. Bingley didn't try to do this, didn't do it, on, didn't hurt Jane on purpose, he still hurt her. And, you know, just without setting out trying to make somebody unhappy, just being thoughtless, not paying attention to other people's feelings, uh, or and not having strong, you know, resolution in your own ideas will make other people unhappy without you even having to try. And he says or Jane comes back and what do you impute it to either of those and Lizzie says yes to the last so the want of resolution which we have already heard she is saying that the reason that Bingley has left is because is not because he does not set out to hurt Jane or was lying about his affections for Jane but that he lacked resolution to you know stick to his guns when his friends disapproved and by friends I mean his sisters and Mr. Darcy um, but I think then it's funny she says but if I go on I shall displease you by saying what I think of persons you esteem stop me whilst you can so I think that is another great line so she's basically like yeah I say that I think that he has lacked resolution but I'm gonna soon say something mean about somebody and you're not gonna be happy about it so we should probably stop talking about this but Jane doesn't take the hint and keeps going on and says, you persist then in supposing his sisters influence him. And Lizzie says, yes, in conjunction with his friend. So she's saying, so you think that his sisters do, you know, are forcing him away from me? I'm like, yeah, and yeah, Mr. Darcy. So his sisters and Mr. Darcy are to blame, are the ones influencing him. And Jane comes back with, I cannot believe it. Why should they try to influence him? They can only wish his happiness. And if he is attached to me, no other woman can secure it. Which is the most naive sentence ever spoken. And Lizzie points that out saying, your first position is false. So what you just said there, they can only wish his happiness. That is false. They may wish many things besides his happiness. And then she goes on to list them. They may wish his increase of wealth and consequence. They may wish him to marry a girl who has all the importance of money, great connections, and pride. So... Lizzie here is correct. Like, and if you know Caroline at all, 
you know that, like, she obviously can want other things than just her brother to be happy. Now, I don't necessarily think she's, like, this evil mastermind who wants her brother to be miserable. But I don't think that it's fair to say that her only, like, driving force would be wanting her brother to be happy. She definitely would also want her brother to have money and have consequence and, you know, improve her social standing by improving his because hers is attached to his. Um, so there are a lot of other things that they could want. And that's a very common thing that even now today, people want their relatives to do things for importance, for money, for things. You know, that's not like an uncommon feeling. So for Jane to feel like those things don't count at all is just incredibly naive in my opinion. But Jane comes back with, you know, they... It does seem like they do want him to choose Mrs. Darcy, but this may be from better feelings than what you are supposing. They have known her much longer than they have known me. No wonder that they, they love her better. So she's saying, so she's putting, she's agreeing that it does seem like Caroline wants her brother to marry Miss Darcy, which we all know to be true. But Jane is saying, well, maybe that's just because she knows Miss Darcy better. They've known her longer. They like her better than they like me. That's, you know... Basically that, you know, they're allowed to like this other girl more than they like me. And it might be before her personality. It might not be because of her money. Now, I don't think that's true. I don't think that they like Miss Darcy better than Jane because they've known her longer. And because, you know, she, I don't know, fits with them socially better. I do think they like Miss Darcy better because she's richer. Um, but it's very nice of Jane to think that maybe they like Miss Darcy better because her, of her personality. I just don't think that's true. But I agree with Jane that they like her better. Then she says, but whatever may be their own wishes, it is very unlikely they should have opposed their brothers. We know that to be not true. They very strongly opposed their brothers' views. She says, what sister would think herself at liberty to do it? Unless there was something very objectionable. And that is where Jane is, I think, misreading the situation. I think Caroline does see something very objectionable in Jane. And it's her family, and it's her family standing, and her connections to some to an uncle that lives in Cheapside, and another one who's a solicitor in Meryton. Again, we've talked about this before, but Mrs. Bennet married up, and significantly up. Mrs. Bennet's connections, which are the Phillipses in Meryton and the Gardeners in London, are of a significantly lower social standing, and by connection, bring the Bennets down, bring the daughters down, as their closest connections are not... Mr. Bennett's family. He doesn't really seem to have any family. Their connections are Mrs. Bennett's family, which are from the working class. Now, Caroline has no leg to stand on because so is her family. She's full of it. But um, they are not of the quality of landed gentry that Caroline would like her brother to marry into. So that is where she finds them very objectionable. I mean, let alone the behavior of Mrs. Bennet and everything, and some of the, and Lizzie and Kitty, Lizzie, Lydia and Kitty, um, well, though she doesn't really like Lizzie's behavior either, um, but, you know, those are the things that, yeah, unless there was something very objectionable, she, Jane is saying that this is completely unbelievable, a sister wouldn't do that, unless there was something very objectionable about the lady, like, Jane, do you not see what they find very objectionable, like, I think it's, again, very naive for Jane not to understand that 
they do find something very objectionable in her. I mean, not in her person and her personality, but in her station and her connections and her money. They do find something very objectionable. But then she goes on to say, if they believed him attached to me, they would not try to part us. If he were so, they could not succeed. By supposing such an affection, you make everybody acting unnaturally and wrong and me most unhappy. So Jane would like to stay with her head buried under the sand and not, you know, she's going to do her little ostrich thing, bury her head in the sand. Nobody can see me. I can't see what's going on because it would make her unhappy to think that um, the sisters, the Bingley sisters were being mean to her and trying to convince Bingley not to marry her. It would also make her sad to think that Bingley was attached to her, but her sisters were able to talk him out of it. So either way, those two things make her unhappy. She'd rather believe that Bingley never loved her at all. And she says, just don't distress me by the idea. I am not ashamed of having been mistaken, or at least it is slight. It is nothing in comparison of what I should feel in thinking ill of him or his sisters. Let me take it in the best light, in the light in which it may be understood. And I think here Jane is really, again, showing us that she would rather bury her head in the sand than actually understand the actual situation. I don't think Jane is stupid. I do think that Jane could understand what is going on. She refuses to, though, because it would hurt her feelings. So she is, she is declaring to Lizzie that I don't want to know the truth. I don't want to think these bad things. It'll make me unhappy, so I'm just going to pretend everything's fine and bury my head in the sand, and we're going to move on with that. And it says, and Elizabeth could not oppose such a wish, and from this time Mr. Bingley's name was scarcely ever mentioned between them. So they have this one conversation about the situation, and then they're going to move on and not talk about it anymore. Then we move on to Mrs. Bennet and what she's doing in this time. Mrs. Bennet still continued to wonder and repine at his returning no more, and though a day seldom passed in which Elizabeth did not account for it clearly, there seemed little chance of her ever considering it with less perplexity. And it just goes on and on that she, Mrs. Bennet, continually just says the same thing over and over again, which we've seen her do a lot, so that seems to be her thing saying that she can't understand how Mr. Bingley could go away and how awful it is. And Lizzie just tells her the same thing over and over, um, telling her something that she actually herself does not believe. So she is trying to, she's trying to convince Mrs. Bennet that Char that Bingley never loved Jane, that they were just, you know, kind of friendly. And once he left, he forgot about her and it's all fine. Not a big deal. Um, I think she's doing that because that's what Jane would like everyone to just think about, think and move on. But they, she's not able to convince Mrs. Bingley, or Mrs. Bingley, Mrs. Bennet. Um, and she really doesn't believe it herself, but they have that conversation a lot. And it ends with Mrs. Bennet's best comfort was that Mr. Bingley must be down again in the summer. So her hopes are all that he'll come back down back, come back again next summer and then he'll fall in love with Jane and they'll all get married then. Then we move on to Mr. Bennet. And I really don't like Mr. Bennett here, which is sad because I do love Mr. Bennett in a lot of other scenes. Um, but this one, I think he is very unfeeling. It comes across as very kind of gross to me because he comes in saying, because it says he treated the matter differently. He says, so Lizzie, your sister is crossed in love, I find. I congratulate her. 
Next to being married, a girl likes to be crossed and loved a little now and then. It is something to think of and gives her a sort of distinction among her companions. Very making light of the fact that Jane is truly grieving and suffering right now. Jane has just had her heart broken. It seems like this is probably the first time she's ever, like, fallen in love. First heartbreak. She is devastated, and we see that going on for farther. Like, Jane is, like, devastated and going into a full-on depression here, and her dad is laughing at her about it. And I think that's cruel. I like a lot of Mr. Bennett. A lot of his laughing. Like, when he's laughing at Mr. Collins, I'm all about it. It's great. But when you're laughing at Jane... Especially about something like this. You're laughing because Jane is depressed. I can't get behind that. And so this is a scene where I do not like Mr. Bennett. And so he just has his little thing about laughing at Jane. And how, you know, gives her this distinction to be crossed in love. And when's it your turn? Are you going to be crossed in love with somebody? Let it be Wickham. He'll do it well. He's a pleasant fellow and would jilt you credibly. And Lizzie plays along with it. He says, She says, thank you, but a less agreeable man would satisfy me. We must not all expect Jane's good fortune. And this one, although I will say this last line from Mr. Bennett is, is pure gold. He says, true, but it is a comfort to think that whatever of the kind might befall you, you have an affectionate mother who will always make the most of it. So that part, he's making fun of his wife. So he is there basically making fun of the fact that whatever happens in that sense for any of the girls, Mrs. Bennet will twist the knife, basically, which is what she's been doing to Jane this whole time, and I think he's right in that sense. Then we change the subject again, and we're now talking about Wickham. So it says, Mr. Wickham was of a material service in dispelling the gloom which, of, which the late perverse occurrence had thrown on many of the Longbourn family. They saw him often, and to his other recommendations was now added that of a general unreserve. The whole of what Elizabeth had already heard, his claims on Mr. Darcy, and all that he had suffered from him, was now openly acknowledged and publicly canvassed. And everybody was pleased to think how much they had always disliked Mr. Darcy before they had known anything of the matter. So this is an important point to, point to think about and point out. Mr. Wickham, before Darcy and Bingley left town, had just kind of quietly told his sad story about losing money and Mr. Darcy being so horrible. He had told it, as far as we know, just to Lizzie. He might have told it to somebody else, but it was kept private. It was quiet. It was not general gossip. No. It seems like as soon as it's confirmed that Mr. Bingley and Mr. Darcy are not coming back to town anytime soon, now he's telling his sob story to everybody. Now it is commonly known. Everybody knows the story. And I do think that that's important when we're looking at foreshadowing of him not being, let's say, truthful. It's important to note that he waits until Mr. Darcy, who could try to refute or, you know, say anything about these claims, he waits till he's gone, and then he talks about it. Which is pretty telling, in my opinion, that he waits for that. It says, Miss Bennet, meaning Jane, was the only creature who could suppose there might be any extenuating circumstances in the case unknown to the Society of Hertfordshire. Her mild and steady candor always pleaded for allowances and urged the possibility of mistakes. So Jane is the only one who thinks that, you know, this could all be some sort of misunderstanding, that Mr. Darcy couldn't be so awful. And she is 
scene, again, we've spent this whole chapter points showing just how naive Jane is with all of her other stuff. And in this sense, I think we're supposed to kind of just see it again. Oh, naive little Jane thinking that there has to be something that, you know, Mr. Darcy couldn't be wrong, but she turns out to be right. Um, but it turns, but it says, but everybody else, Mr. Darcy was condemned as the worst of men. And that is how this chapter ends. We've, we learn that all of Hertfordshire, except for Jane, thinks that Mr. Darcy is the worst of men. <sighs> so this entire chapter is mostly just the gossip going on, continuing to talk about the gossip about the Collins, Mr. Collins and Charlotte and about Mr. Bingley leaving town and kind of talking about what that means about his character, what that means about um, his situation with Jane, the whole thing. So we'll get to meet some of my favorite characters next time because I believe the gardeners are coming soon. I think they might even come in the next chapter, which will be very, very exciting because I love the gardeners. And we'll get, we are getting to the point where we're finally going to leave Hertfordshire. We've been there for all of volume one. And pretty soon now, Elizabeth is going to go see the Collinses in Kent and it'll be very exciting. Not next, not next chapter, but soon. We'll be, we'll be going there soon. It'll be exciting. And I'll get to rant more about Charlotte and her situation, I am sure. Um, and if you're already over my rants about Charlotte, I am sorry, but they will continue because... Because, 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 because! Because um, I got a lot to say about her, if you haven't noticed yet. It's just the truth. Either way, I will see you next time for Chapter 2. Mm -hmm.